All right. Well, good morning, and thanks for listening in uh, to the sermon this morning from Prairie View Christian Church on what I'm sure is a very different Palm Sunday uh, than any of us expected. Uh, but as Joshua said in the announcements, uh, this is where we are. Uh, while it might be quite foreign to us, it maybe isn't so foreign to other Christians in other places and in other times. Uh, so my hope this morning is that uh, the other resources we've put out and, of course, this sermon uh, would remind us of what Palm Sunday really is all about and what the coming week uh, will be all about. So with that, we will get started. Now, last week, we read a short passage from Mark 10, focusing on just verses 32 through 45. And while we may have only read 13 verses, that handful of words was densely packed with significant theological and practical truths. It started with Jesus's third prediction of his suffering, rejection, death and resurrection. Then we saw another example of the disciples' failure to understand as they are embroiled in power plays. And then we see a quick but stunning summary of who Jesus is and what he came to do in verse 45. In his own words, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross will be Jesus's ultimate act of humble service as he offers up himself as the eternal sacrifice for the sins of all who believe in him. But the cross isn't just significant in terms of what Jesus has done for us. The cross is also the model and the motivation for our own lives of humble service to others. Now, we mentioned last week as well that The tension in the story rises with the addition of just one word in Mark 10, verse 32. And that word is Jerusalem. What makes that word so significant is that Jerusalem is where the cross waits. Now, in chapter 10, Jesus and the disciples were on their way there. But today, on Palm Sunday, they arrive. So this morning, we're going to read the story of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem some 2000 years ago and also read what he did in his first few days there. But then we'll look ahead to another triumphal entry, one that hasn't happened yet, but one that is an incredible source of hope, confidence and motivation for believers today. So feel free to follow along, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. But before we do any reading, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this Palm Sunday morning. Uh, Again, even though it's not the Palm Sunday that any of us would have expected or planned for, uh, it's humbling and it's sobering uh, to realize that Even when our lives are thrown off balance and even when unexpected challenges and hardships and sufferings come our way, the events that we remember and celebrate every year within the Church of Christ, uh, these events still go on. Uh, Even as we're not gathered in the sanctuary, even as we're not at the church, even as we are isolated and separated from each other, it's still Palm Sunday. And we can still look back and remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem 
And in the week ahead, of course, we can still look back and remember what Jesus accomplished when he got there. But Father, I pray that as we read your word this morning, uh, as we read a story that maybe we're familiar with, that we're probably somewhat attuned to, that we've heard before, I pray that you would teach us new things. Um, We can come to a text of your word one year in a very different situation than we were in last year, and it can speak to us in new ways. Uh, And that just tells us something about the power of your word. And so I pray that Maybe that would happen this morning uh, on this strange Palm Sunday. Again, thank you that Christ went to Jerusalem knowing what was waiting for him. Thank you that he went there to give his life as a ransom for many. And thank you that Christ's sacrifice is the basis, the foundation, the source of our hope, of our joy, our salvation. And that hope and that joy and that salvation cannot be taken away from us regardless of what might be happening in the world right now. Again, we love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, as we read the classic Palm Sunday passage, there are a few things to note. And if you've been here on previous Palm Sundays, these might sound familiar. That's because the text hasn't changed in the last year or so. The first thing we notice is that Jesus is in complete control of this entire situation. We see that most clearly in those specific instructions about where the disciples will get the colt from and what people might say to them when they take it away. Now, the fact that Jesus is painstakingly orchestrating all of these events shouldn't surprise us. He already offered three detailed predictions of what will soon happen to him. But Jesus' control of this situation doesn't just display his power or omniscience or sovereignty. It stresses and underlines the truth that Jesus' life is not being taken from him. As he said last week, Jesus is giving his life. Jesus is not a victim He is a sacrifice. 
Next thing is to consider some of the sights in the verses that we just read. The donkey's colt is no mere coincidence or minor detail. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, where the righteous, saving, humble king of God's people rides into town on a donkey. Jesus really is God's anointed king. By riding that donkey, Jesus is playing directly into that. But as the crowds will see over the coming days, he won't be the kind of king they expected. Another side, of course, is the royal welcome that Jesus receives. Clothes thrown on the road, branches thrown on the road and waved in the air. In 2 Kings 9, crowds laid their clothes on the road before King Jehu, before he cleansed Israel of corruption. In the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabean Revolution, when the Jews pushed back against their foreign oppressors and were victorious. So if you put these two images together, clothes thrown down, palm branches waved, it's clear that this crowd has high expectations of who they think Jesus is and what they think he's come to do. And then finally, consider some of the sounds from the triumphal entry. That word Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It can be translated as something like, O Lord, grant salvation, or Lord, save. Hosanna is a petition for God to act. And in this case, for God to act through Jesus. But what specifically do the crowds want Jesus to do? Well, those words about the coming kingdom of David tell us. The crowds expect God to save them through Jesus by defeating their enemies, restoring King David's throne to his ancestor, and returning Jerusalem to Jewish control, just like it was during the good old days of King Solomon. So that sums up the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Mark. And like he does in many other stories, Mark spares us some of the finer details that other Gospel writers include. But the point is that this is clearly not just another religious teacher coming into town. And the crowds do not expect this to be just another Passover week. And speaking of the rest of the week, what happens in the first few days following the triumphal entry? Verses 1 through 11 occur on Sunday, but let's look ahead to Monday and Tuesday. Monday is contained in chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. And it all begins with Jesus cursing a fig tree for failing to bear fruit. There's debate over what that fig tree could represent. Some say it symbolizes the temple. Others say it's the religious leaders. Others say it represents God's people as a whole. But whatever the fig tree might symbolize, the point is obvious the next morning. When Jesus passes by that fig tree again, his words are fulfilled. This cursed fig tree wasn't producing the fruit it was intended to and will not again. 
It has been judged and it has been found wanting. From there, Jesus cleanses the temple. Why? Because what Jesus had once referred to as his father's house had been tainted by wickedness and irreverence. Just like the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah mourned generations earlier. What was meant to be a holy house of prayer, a dwelling place for God's presence on earth, has degenerated into a market, a den of robbers. That's Monday. But much more scripture is devoted to Tuesday. It starts in chapter 11, verse 20. Now, the theme of the rest of chapter 11 and pretty much all of chapter 12 is almost constant. The theme is Jesus's repeated confrontations with the religious leaders who probably weren't very happy with what he did in the temple the day before. Some of these confrontations are initiated by the religious leaders. Some are initiated by Jesus. First, the religious leaders question Jesus's authority implying that he has no right to do what he's been doing since he came to town. But Jesus doesn't really engage them and ultimately refuses to even answer their question. Then Jesus condemns the religious leaders in the parable of the vineyard. He exposes them as irresponsible servants of God who had abused the authority that God entrusted to them. He compares them to mutinous workers in a vineyard who try to steal the vineyard, overthrow its owner, even if that means killing the owner's son. And then we see a series of questions. They try to get Jesus in trouble with Caesar by asking him about taxes. They try to stump Jesus with convoluted theological conundrums. But in the end, Jesus proves himself to be a far more qualified interpreter of God's word than the religious leaders are. And the crowds love him for it. After these repeated confrontations, Jesus has exposed the religious leaders as frauds. Chapter 12 closes with Jesus warning his disciples to stay away from them. They crave attention. They are arrogant and entitled. They greedily exploit the downtrodden, and they are experts at sounding holy so long as other people are listening. They will ultimately be condemned for this. The disciples can learn far more about godliness from the poor, humble, insignificant widow of chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, than they can from the morally and spiritually bankrupt religious leaders. So it's been a busy first few days in Jerusalem for Jesus. There was all the pomp, the circumstance, and the loaded expectations of his triumphal entry on Sunday. There was the cleansing of the temple on Monday. And there were the repeated confrontations with the religious leaders on Tuesday. And by now, don't you think that Jesus should take a day or two off? I mean, shouldn't he rest up for the rest of the week? After all, the worst hasn't even happened yet. But there's still one more passage to read. Jesus has one more thing to do on that Tuesday. 
We see it in chapter 13 where Jesus predicts two future events. The first is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, found in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. We read there. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would have been unthinkable in the Jewish imagination. God had allowed it to happen once before in the Old Testament at the hands of Babylon some 600 years earlier. But would he really let it happen again? Well, according to Jesus, he would. And some 40 years after his death and resurrection, Jesus' prediction is fulfilled. The Jewish temple falls again, this time to the Romans. But what I really want you to pay attention to in chapter 13 is the second prediction. It's the prediction about Jesus' future return. We see that in verses 24 through 27. Jesus says there, But in those days, after that tribulation, referring to the first prediction, the destruction of the temple, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So Jesus promises that one day he will return. The only clue we get about the timing is that it will occur after the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. Just a few verses later, Jesus says that concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. So don't try to predict it. But when that day comes, God's people will be saved. God's enemies will be judged once and for all. But for now, the challenge to believers as they wait is simple. Stay awake. Stay awake. Now that sums up Mark chapter 11 through 13. But let's be honest for a moment. What does this have to do with us? I mean, sure, it's Palm Sunday, and Christians typically acknowledge the triumphal entry. It's kind of important. It's maybe even a tradition. But what about all the other stuff we read? I mean, can't Mark just skip Monday and Tuesday? After all, doesn't all the really important stuff happen later in the week anyway? Well, everything that we've read is important. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be included in the story in the first place. But most of all, I want you to think about the first passage that we read. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And the last passage we read. Chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. I want you to think about Jesus' first triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Sunday. And I want you to think about his prediction 
of his second coming on Tuesday. Jesus' promised second coming hasn't happened yet. So on this Palm Sunday of 2020, you could say that Christians like us are still watching, still waiting, still staying awake, looking for another triumphal entry. We already saw Jesus lay out his second coming in the Gospel of Mark, the verses we just read. But this promise is made clear in other New Testament passages as well. After Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand in Acts chapter 1, angels tell the stunned disciples in verse 11 that someday this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul says that when Christians eat and drink at communion, we're not just looking back to Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. We're also looking ahead to his promised return. In 2 Peter 3, Peter stresses that while some might mock you for still believing in Jesus' second coming after all this time away, you'll be proven right in the end. When he returns. And then at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, John hears it from the horse's mouth when Jesus says in verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. One day Jesus will make another triumphal entry. One day he will return. And it won't be just a crowd outside of Jerusalem. Waving palm branches that will see him. All creation will see him. Ever since God established the church, some 2,000 years ago, Christians have looked forward to the day of Jesus' second coming, his next triumphal entry. When that day comes, the request that we make in the Lord's Prayer will finally be fulfilled. God's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For Christians, this will not be a day of terror or dread. It will be a day of reunion, worship, and reward. We will finally be made truly and fully holy. God himself will be our light. This fallen world will be renewed, and sin, death, and Satan, and all their trappings will be cast down forever. And when Jesus comes again, he will not be coming to give his life as a ransom for many. He's already done that once and for all on the cross. This time he'll be coming to rule and reign forever. And those who have believed in him, followed him, obeyed him, loved him, and worshipped him, past, present, and future, dead or alive, will not be disappointed. We talked about that word, Hosanna, that was shouted at the triumphal entry. Lord, save. Well, early Christians had another word that summed up our hope in Jesus' second triumphal entry, his eventual return. The word is Maranatha, an Aramaic word that can be translated as Lord, come. 
Lord, come. You know, perhaps our hope in Christ's second coming, his next triumphal entry, is particularly important in the circumstances that we currently find ourselves in. At times, we might be tempted to fall a little too in love with our world as it currently is. Sometimes we may get a little too comfortable with the way things are right now. This is especially true of people who, like many, if not most of us, have been relatively insulated from so much of the suffering, the violence, the injustice, and the evil of our fallen world. We can be so blessed that we might start to think that life in this fallen world may not be that bad after all. Maybe this really is the best there is. Well, there's no better reminder that we live in a fallen world, a decaying, corrupt world, than a global pandemic. The widespread suffering and death that we're seeing reminds us that the world as we know it is not how it should be. And it should not be the permanent grounds of our hope and our joy. Our current situation of a global pandemic can wake us up to the truth that eternal contentment cannot be found, is not meant to be found, in this fallen world. So what do we do? Well, we look ahead to Christ's return. The ultimate solution to our fallen world won't be achieved by us. The ultimate solution isn't to escape our fallen world. The ultimate solution to our fallen world is Christ's second coming, his next triumphal entry. On that first Palm Sunday, the crowds outside of Jerusalem shouted, Hosanna. Well, on this Palm Sunday, maybe more than most Palm Sundays before, we can shout something similar. We can shout, Maranatha. Lord, come. Lord, save. Lord, help. Lord, redeem. Lord, renew. In these next few days leading up to Easter, Christians will do a lot of looking back. On Thursday, we'll look back at the Last Supper and Jesus' prayer and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. On Friday, we'll look back on the crucifixion. On Saturday, we may even look back to a day of silence as Jesus laid in the tomb. And on Sunday, we'll look back at his victorious resurrection. But today, take a moment to look ahead. Look ahead to Christ's second coming, his next triumphal entry. This future event is just as sure as the past events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And on this Palm Sunday, with the Christians who came before us, may we say, Maranatha. May we say, Lord, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for Palm Sunday. Thank you for the reminder that it is of what Jesus did in Jerusalem. He knew full well 
what he was getting himself into. He understood what you were asking him to do on our behalf. And he did it faithfully, obediently. And it's because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, the things that we look back on in this week, maybe even more than every other week in the calendar, it's because of what happened in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago that we are saved, that we can pray to you to begin with, that we can call you our Father. But Lord, I also pray that we would look ahead, that as we're so tempted to discouragement, so tempted to exhaustion, so tempted to lose hope, lose faith, to fall asleep and fail to look ahead to Christ's return. Lord, I pray that you would help us keep waiting. Help us endure. Sustain us. Preserve us. Lord, give us hope. I pray that you would continue to protect us, provide for us in the midst of this particular crisis that we're in right now. This crisis that makes us say, Maranatha, come Lord, with maybe a little more oomph than we would have before, three weeks ago or a month ago. But Lord, I pray that our desire to see Christ return wouldn't just be a temporary thing, wouldn't just be during particularly bad times, but that we would constantly be looking forward to Christ's return, constantly be longing to be in his presence, constantly waiting and watching and staying awake for the day when this world as we know it, decaying and deteriorating and corrupted, will be made new. Father, we thank you that Christ triumphantly entered at Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, And we look forward to the day when Christ will triumphantly come into our world again. Preserve us until that day, Lord, and find us faithful. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.